Imagine there's no heaven It's easy if you try No hell below us Above us only sky And all the people living for today. Welcome. My name is Anne Wilson, and it is my pleasure to host the Emerge Australia podcast series, in which we speak to people impacted by and associated with. MECFS and Long COVID. We acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands on which we meet and pay our respects to Elders past, present, emerging and any listening today. John Lennon's iconic Imagine is the theme of our podcast series. So I wonder if we can imagine a world where there is no discrimination or stigma, a world where the voices of those suffering invisibly in silence are heard, seen and addressed, a world where we have a cure for MECFS or at the very least a biomarker or diagnostic test, let alone updated clinical guidelines. Imagine all the people. Today we talk with Kate Baycheck, who is a carer for her bed-bound adult child with ME. Kate is a registered nurse who has worked in the public hospital system for over 35 years. She was utterly floored at the demands of caring for a bedbound person 24-7, particularly her own child. Kate didn't expect that her 33-year-old daughter would have severe limitations placed on her physical and mental capacity. Her daughter had led an active, community-spirited life and was a passionate yoga teacher. So to tell us more about what Kate and her daughter have experienced and to provide her insights as a mother and healthcare professional, it is my pleasure to welcome you, Kate, to this podcast. Thank you, Anne. So to start us off, could you tell us more about how your MECFS journey commenced with your daughter. So first of all, I'd like to say that, you know, foremost, I'm a mother and carer for my 33-year-old adult child, and they're non-binary. And so I'll be using their pronouns, which are they and them, and I'll be referring to them as my NB, which is short for non-binary, and my pronouns are she and they. So... My NB is bound, bed bound with severe ME and severe POTS and it's taken seven years to get a diagnosis and in that time my NB's bed bound status could have been prevented by pacing and not doing exercise. So, you know, I'm a registered nurse, I'm specialised in cancer care but at my core I am an advocate. You know, I'm a privileged middle class white woman I'm English-speaking, university-educated, health-literate, 
able-bodied and it matters that I live in a big capital city because I've got the access to health resources that rural and remote people can only dream of. So how do carers without my background cope? This is what has really risen up inside me now that I've been able to take a breath because how do they survive if they don't have my privilege and what if they don't speak English or not fluently? You know, and what if they're struggling to keep a roof over their head, you know, with even with two incomes like many are these days? So how can they and how can we help each other when we're exhausted every day? Yeah. And so, yeah, I, I care about people with ME and their carers because together we have been dealing with stigma and misogyny because most people with ME are women. And this is across health professions and most surprisingly, very highly educated medical specialists. And I don't say that lightly because in my entire nursing career, you know, 35 years in the public health system, I've found doctors and health professionals, you know, especially in the field of cancer, to be quite exceptional. You know, they go the extra mile and they have good skills in compassion and listening and their patients love them. And they're experts of many years of hard work and slog and relentless hours. But the thing is they have well understood and researched diagnosis and treatments and they can build their skills on the back of you know, these long established pathways. So that gives them status in the community. But with ME to the medical profession, it's unknown to them. Now their training's done in hospitals, in the acute care model, and if you don't know and you're used to diagnosis on the run, shockingly, the point of deferral is mental illness or the old hysteria because it's mostly women who get diagnosed and the advice is CBT and exercise therapy. And that exercise therapy is the direct cause of my envy being bedbound because they didn't know, the doctors didn't know about pacing. Yes. Now, I I was going to take you you you're you've taken us on a journey that is uh, really interesting and fascinating for me to try to unpack. But I was going to take you back to that comment about um, the trigger being exercise, and uh, that pacing is uh, something that has has been really positive for your daughter. Would you mind unpacking that a little bit more for us, please? Yes, so unfortunately, the process with ME is that every expenditure of energy has a compounded effect on exhaustion and recovery time. So anytime you choose to do anything, if it's walking, you know, six steps to get to the toilet, you have to calculate every day how much you're going to do in order to have enough time to recover to do something else. So you might have to choose between that and making a phone call. And there's a consequence to every activity because the recuperation time from the exhaustion of that activity is exponential and it's not wholly predictable either. So there might be a good day and you can visit the toilet two or three times but there might be another day where you can just make one phone call and be totally exhausted and so like the very very basic things even 
you know, putting your arms out to reach for cutlery. We've made all our cutlery lightweight bamboo, plastic and, and drink bottles with long straws so that they don't have to move their arms out too much because that's exhausting over a day. You know, this and, and, and they're a very severe, a very severe case. But that's really interesting the, getting that perspective. I don't actually think um, that in my time as CEO of Emerge Australia, I've heard anyone explain uh, uh, exercise in that way. And I think that is something that's particularly helpful and will be helpful not just to our listeners, but to clinicians to uh, unpack a bit further. So that's that's um, really fascinating. Thank you for that, that insight. Mm. Kate, I want to take you into being a mother mm. um, and I want to go into that area of how a mother feels when they see their daughter in that state and what it does to you as an individual, as a mother, to your emotional state and how you cope? Well, I, I couldn't have done it without counselling. So one of the things, after about a year, I did contact. There was a contact through Emerge, who, um, which I'm grateful for, that... Uh, let me know about Carers Australia. And actually one of the things they said was we offer free counselling. Uh, but I had my own counsellor who's a, a clinical psychologist because it's too much of a load on your own. You can't expect the person you're caring for to be your soundboard. You can't expect people who are helping you to be your soundboard and help you as well, you know, and... Um, I've got friends who've got young children and big, you know, big burdens on their life. And so it was good to have someone who was impartial and get some perspective and draw and help me to see the strengths that I do have. And because when you are witness to someone who is suffering and that someone is your child, that's an extra load on top of the caring, the bearing witness to the suffering that you can do nothing about. So I had to learn a long time ago because they were very sick growing up as well. They had a lot of recurrent pneumonia and very severe asthma. So I had to learn not to go down that spiral of guilt I learned that a long time ago, not, not to go down the spiral of guilt. What could I have done to make this better? What wasn't I seeing? You know, what is wrong with my parenting? That's, it's none of that. That's all, that's all self-spiralling. It's not helpful and it's not the truth. So I had to find a lot of internal resources to, to, to stop that cycle and to interrupt it and go, okay, what are my strengths here? You know, I'm smart. Uh, I I can pull a bit more capacity. What, where, you know, what, what else can I pull out of myself to keep going forward? Because there is no other way except going forward. Yeah. 
Do you have any dark days? Do you have any moments? Definitely, definitely. How do you cope with the dark times? Well, I am very good at sleeping and I find that's my best recovery is to sleep. Like I can do power napping very well and I think it's because during breastfeeding two children, I actually did that really well. Like I found I could be awake, be attentive, and then go back to sleep. And so my dark times now, I mean, not so much now. We've got carers now. It's taken us a lot of advocacy and two um, rejections from the NDIS. But I would just allow myself to do that, allow myself to not get out of my pyjamas for two days, just serve and go to the couch and rest and take a nap and then serve and attend and do all the roles that a full-time carer has to do. Um, you know, I recovered that way, but I did have dark times and I knew, and when I, I could ring my counsellor before an appointment and go, I'm not doing well. And then my counsellor had the skills to give me some tools. Some of those tools were ones I've used in the past, which is, you know, mindfulness and breathing. A lot of people don't know how to breathe. Like I find that as a cancer nurse, it's quite extraordinary. But I know how to breathe and I know how to focus on the breath. And she gave me some tapping meditation to do and some apps to follow. And, yeah, I just allowed myself to watch dumb TV Emerge Australia aims to ensure that anyone impacted by ME-CFS or long COVID has access to support, information and advocacy that empowers them with the knowledge and skills to make their lives more livable. We offer support to over half a million Australians who face ME-CFS and long COVID. There are a lot of people out there who, when they hear the word counselling or they hear the word psychologist, um, rail against that because they think of cognitive behaviour therapy. Yes. Can you, can you, as someone who's experienced the benefits of counselling, particularly also associated with the grief and loss that you as a parent must experience, can you talk a little bit about the difference between therapeutic counselling to help you cope day to day and the interpretation that that may be seen as cognitive behavioural therapy? So, you know, the way doctors are trained is to diagnose in 15 minutes and to have really short sound bites to give people, to tick a box that they've done their best. And so CBT is something that they can just say, yeah, look, do CBT, there's good evidence behind it, and you know, do more exercise. Um, And look, I did CBT when I was 19. Uh, And it's something that you do and it's finished and you have a a very, um, it's a a way of turning off a trigger, basically. My trigger at 19 was to go straight to anger and I wanted to do something about it. So I found out about CBT and um, I could unpack each time by writing a journal what it was in the interaction that caused the anger, trying to see the time before that trigger 
how was I feeling? How was I feeling the moment that that thing was said or the situation I was in? And then reflecting on it and arguing the point, actually, that's not a way that I want to handle it. I want to handle it in this way. And the more you write it down, uh, the clearer it is to see. And it's, you know, then you can use that again during your lifetime. But it's not the ongoing reflection that counselling does. So this is a qualified clinical psychologist who gets to know who you are, what your personality is like, what are the things that make you tick, and then they can pick up along the way and really target, you know, how did that make you feel and, you know, what are your own personal resources and what what about you tried this? Yeah. And that that advice is completely personalised based on incredible expertise. Yeah. So the advice someone would give to me on the basis of my background will be entirely different to the advice given to another person. Yeah. You know, and especially if there's backgrounds of trauma, backgrounds of not being able to do any self-reflection, all sorts of things. Now, yeah. Being bullied at school will put you in a different, you know, framework in how you relate to things as an adult or being a constantly angry person and reactive to things, that'll put you from a different starting point and that's where they meet you, where you are at that point and they have the expertise to see you again and again as you require it. Yeah, yeah. So... In your bio, I've just been reminded we have 10 minutes to go and I want to talk to you for another hour. (laughs) Um, In the bio you sent us through, you discussed medical gaslighting and you referred to the appalling costs of healthcare. Would you like to go into those areas? Mm. So gaslighting is used by doctors when I think it's a reflection on their lack of knowledge. So if they can't determine what's wrong with you in 15 minutes and you don't fit any of their guidelines, well, they defer to mental illness. So they basically say, oh, well, it couldn't be. You know, you can't, you, how is it that you walk four steps and you're exhausted for a day, you know? So then they do a lot of blood tests and they do scans and, look, there's nothing wrong with you, there's nothing wrong with you, therefore it must be in your head. And that's what gaslighting is, you know. Gaslighting is, oh, surely not. You know, oh, it can't be. Oh, maybe you should just do more exercise. That's what gaslighting is. So they, uh, um, I've lost my track a bit. You're talking about medical gaslighting and what doctors do and describing the medical gaslighting. And then I asked you, uh, you, you mentioned in your bio about the appalling costs to health of healthcare. Yeah. Well, I think too, in the hospital environment, we do acute care very well. And if something is beyond the scope of a GP, Well, there's nothing in between when people need repeated investigations. So the thing with ME is that there's so many different side effects and they change over time. 
But the cost of repeating things like a blood test at GP level is really expensive. We've had thousands of dollars worth of blood tests because GPs are only allowed to prescribe one set of blood tests, I don't know, over a certain period. Maybe it's once a month or something at the most. So if your doctor's running a series of tests because things are changing, you have to pay for that privately. So even I had no idea about this, how much we've had to pay and how much we've had to pay consultants. And even when they spend a lot of the time actually talking about themselves, it's quite crazy because they don't know what to do with you. And they've actually said to us, well, we've brought diagnostic not diagnostic criteria, but it's a set of symptoms by which you could make a diagnosis from the UK, from the US to an appointment. We say, would you like us to send you some research? And they go, look, I actually don't have time for that. Like they're not interested. They say, I've got enough of my own research. Yeah, yeah. So what do you believe needs to be done to bring about change for people and carers of those with ME-CFS and long COVID? So for a start, education of doctors at the beginning. Don't defer to mental illness and don't pathologise symptoms as women's problems, which they uh, don't validate. And for Australia... I mean, the UK and the US have got guidelines. Australia needs to have its own set of guidelines for diagnosis, and this needs to be known to GPs. GPs are totally capable of diagnosing this. But when there's no set of Australian-agreed guidelines, uh, they won't do it. Very few doctors will do it. And Medicare needs to allow for more appointments for chronic health that are bulk billed. But then, you know, not all consultants will bulk bill. So I think investment in research is the only way. There's a lot of good foundational research, but the numbers aren't big enough. So we've got to get, rather than cohort sizes of uh, cohort sizes of 20 or 30 people we need thousands now if there's 250,000 people with me we'll be able to do that it's about investing in research and i actually feel that as a carer financially although it was very tough um living on the carer's pension but i was able to work two days a week and supplement that but um it was very easy to get what's not easy to get is any other help I mean, 40 hours a year for carers through Carers Gateway, which for us was the Benevolent Society, it's just not enough. There's all these carers behind closed doors really struggling with no contact with the outside world. I mean, I don't know how they manage. And, you know, they need more support than 40 hours a year if they can't get the NDIS, getting the NDIS, I wish there was a a very straightforward process 
to say the, these are the conditions on which this person is living. You know, this is disabling. And, it, yeah, these, it was minimised by the NDIS. The only reason why we got the NDIS is because I advocated in a forum directly to Bill Shorten by chance. We never would have got the NDIS without that. We got two rejections over two years. So I don't know. The people at the NDIS don't know how to read and interpret letters. They want the letters. They want the OT assessments, but they don't read them or they don't believe them. I think they're gaslighting as well. I so know Bill Short. They put you through all these hoops. Yeah. That, as you say, take years uh, to to deliver a result. But what you're saying is that uh, all the letters and correspondence, et cetera, that various clinicians are asked to do to support someone who's applying for the NDIS are often negated because they don't read them. Yeah, they couldn't have read them. There's no way they could have read them and made a decision that they weren't eligible. Yep. How can you say a bedbound person is not eligible for an electric wheelchair? Mm. And then we even got an OT who gaslit us saying, well, how is it possible that you just can't walk over there four steps to go to the toilet? You know, and my NB said, well, I could, but then I have to make a decision over the next few days, can I attend that Zoom medical appointment or can I have a conversation with a friend? But And then they go, well, that's crazy. And she said, yeah. No, my NB said, I know it sounds crazy. And the OT nodded their head and went, yeah, that sounds crazy and rolled their eyes to my NB's support coordinator. Yeah. And this is the gateway person to get my NB a wheelchair. Yeah. I guess the judgment of of some healthcare professionals is just so condemning. On so that. condemning. There's so much stigma. Mm. It's pervasive. It's not the exception. It's the rule. Yes. It's so pervasive. You yes. know, years ago, Anne, I don't know if I've said this already in this podcast, but um, I was a manager of a department and the neurology registrar, I asked him if he'd heard about ME. This is about 10 years ago because I've got a friend who's got ME. I said, what have you heard about ME? And he made the sign of, you know, turning his finger around his ear saying, those people are crazy. And now he's a consultant in another field. But who was he learning from? He was learning from his consultant, from his university of medicine. That's the kind of thing we're dealing with. Yeah. You know, and then at the, at the, at the bottom you've got all these carers suffering behind closed doors at the consequences of these very, very influential people who hold the keys to giving people proper medical care. That's how pervasive and that's how powerful they are. I think that what you've very clearly highlighted for us, Kate, and we're going to have to 
uh, stop it there. Otherwise, I'm going to keep getting text messages from Jane to say you've run out of time. Um, <laughs> what you highlighted for us um, are the real challenges and the invisible struggles that carers have behind closed doors and and one of the opportunities for us at Emerge Australia is to be uh, much more supportive of the struggles that carers have to highlight those, make them more visible and um, to use uh, those struggles in our advocacy to government to create change for carers and patients. And then there's the whole other issue which we haven't got time to go into around the classification of disability with regard to the NDIS and the fact that a person who is bedbound uh, is not seen as having a disability by the NDIS. And that's a huge issue. Definitely, definitely. So, Kate Paycheck, thank you for your time and for your very unique perspective, uh, which has been incredibly instructive for me and I hope for anyone listening, for your willingness to share your personal experiences as a, a carer of your MB. We so appreciate having you on our podcast series and understand how difficult talking about these issues is for all carers. Your story and that of others who participate in our podcast series is making a difference. So we thank you profusely. Yeah, I really um I really send my energy out to all those carers who are struggling. There are resources. Don't be afraid of counselling and have a look at what's available online when you've got the energy and be very kind to yourself and know that if you're having a bad day when you sleep, and I hope you can sleep well, that you wake up and every day is a new day and you start afresh and leave yesterday behind. What unbelievably sound advice from someone who knows. Thank you so much, Kate. Great. Thank you, Anne. So the Emerge Australia podcast series seeks to speak with people of influence and those like Kate whose voices need to be heard. This is a platform where we can together explore the pressing issues faced by 250,000 people with MECFS and at least 400,000 more with long COVID. Please tune in again for our next interview and don't forget that for more information, and to subscribe to the Emerge Australia newsletter, visit our website on www.emerge.org.au. Thank you so much, Kate, and bye for now. Thank you, Anne. Goodbye. You may say that I'm a dreamer, but I'm not.